We're going to look at 1 Timothy 3.16 this morning. 1 Timothy 3.16 is probably one of the oldest confessions of faith or Christian creeds that we know anything about. Uh, unless you want to, of course, go back to uh, all of the things that look forward to this, like, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, but uh, certainly in the New Testament here, uh, this is a one of the earliest uh, confessions of faith that we have. It's very succinct. It is called a mystery, which is a a set of words in this case that points to a greater reality. Sometimes confessions of faith are called symbols in, uh, in the study of them, symbolics. So this is a Christian symbol or a Christian mystery, a creed of our faith, if you will. Let's read it together. I'll, I'll read it out loud and you can read it quietly. 1 Timothy 3.16, Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He that is God in Christ was manifested in the spirit, excuse me, manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on into the world, taken up into glory. Of course, I want to talk to you about the resurrection of Jesus Christ this morning, but in order to understand the resurrection rightly, we have to understand a Christian theology of death, which lies behind it. And, of course, that takes us back to the very beginnings of the Bible. But when God created the world, the Bible says that there was no death. There was no suffering. In other words, um, all of the world as we know it is a perversion of that original world that God made that was holy and beautiful and good. God looked around at that world after He had made it and He said, this is all very good. There was no evil in it. Can you imagine living in a world like that with no death and no evil of any kind and no effects of evil in the world? Just think how different your world would be how different work would be and life and civilization and communities and and families and even our own individual lives, how different they would be. That's the world that God made at the very beginning. In fact, death came into that world as an intruder from the outside, as it were. Romans chapter 5 says that sin came into the world and death came through sin. It's like sin opened the door and then death and destruction and perversion and twistedness and brokenness and pain and suffering came in right at its heels. Until there was sin in the world, there was no death in the world. We don't know how long that situation was the case, but it was for a while a beautiful and pristine world. But God created man woman, put them in the garden on a kind of probation with at least the potential of immortality, the ability not to die, not to be 
uh, chained by the mortal nature that we so know now. Man was, was open to that possibility of immortality, but yet mankind was not confirmed in immortality. That is, that that, um, that potential could be lost. And of course, God um, gave them a very uh, visible demonstration of those things in the garden itself. He put um, kind of sacramental trees, as it were. Uh, one tree, the tree of knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil, which also represented the seeking of knowledge independent from God. And, and it was forbidden. Uh, and then another tree that was called the tree of life that was a, uh, that represented a confirmation in immortal fellowship with God to be confirmed, to be solidified in immortality and to be able to commune with God for all eternity um, with, in an unbroken state. So there was these two trees. And of course, the test came because God said to Adam and Eve, do not eat of the tree of knowledge. In other words, God will give you all the knowledge you need. God will tell you what is good and what's not good. The knowledge, the, the, the temptation of knowledge was to say for yourself, well, that looks good. Or that doesn't seem good. To do that independently of what God had revealed. And of course, most of you know the story that that's exactly what Adam and Eve did. They ate the fruit and their eyes were opened in a sense. But in that moment, they were plunged into darkness and separation from God, into death, really. So we have to understand that. There's a second thing, though, I think we have to understand if we're going to appreciate the resurrection of Jesus Christ and all that it means for us as, as Christians, if you're a Christian here today. And the second thing that we have to understand in terms of background is the collectiveness of humankind, the collected nature of our race. Mankind is uh, many and yet one. It's the way God made humanity. Humanity is a unit. And so the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, stand actually for us all. And Romans chapter 5 says that Adam's sin in the garden was actually our own sin. Now that's a hard thing for a lot of people to buy into. How can, how can Adam's sin in the garden be my sin? How come I'm guilty because of what Adam did. But I think if you think about it, you'll understand that there are things that happen to us all the time in a similar way, things that other people do that affect us. How many of us don't understand that things that others have done have affected our lives in really dramatic ways, right? How can you live in life and not experience that? 
But your choices, your decisions are going to affect people. We understand this in terms of uh, the way our government functions. We have a representative government, and we go to the polls, and we, we punch the ballot, and we elect our representatives, and in turn they go, and they make decisions, and their decisions are binding on all of us. Why? Because they represent us. They are our duly appointed representatives. And we have the opportunity, actually, in this country of having a say in those representatives. Um, Adam and Eve were our duly appointed representatives. And they were appointed as such by God himself. How can that not be just? And yet, even still, it's not as if God punishes us directly for the sins of someone else. Rather, the Bible's teaching is not that you were punished because of what Adam did, but that you sinned in Adam. And so, his sin was your sin, is, was our sin. It was the sin of all humanity as we entered into it um, as a race. And, you know, if you, if, if you come to all of that and, and, and somebody says, well, I still, it still seems so hard for me to, um, to believe and to receive that kind of teaching. Um, I mean, you could just take it down to this level and just put it on the level of a personal test and ask yourself how you have done when you're confronted with the law of God for you. Right now, Adam and Eve had a moral law that we all have. They also had a, a very positive, specific law that is, don't eat of that fruit of that tree. Every one of us, with regard to the moral law, you just think about the Ten Commandments, and you, have you, as you have been confronted with those Ten Commandments, at some point in your experience, you have suppressed the truth that you knew in your heart or from the Word. You have suppressed that in order to do what you wanted to do. Right. In other words. You find me a human out there who's not a child of Adam, who's not a daughter of Eve. There isn't one. We are all, the, the proof is in the pudding, so to speak. We all share that same nature. It's, our, it's ours. That's us. When we read Genesis 1, or Genesis 3, rather, that's us. All right? And that's the Bible's teaching about the collective nature of mankind. Now, because of Adam's sin, and our sin in Adam, we lost the ability not to die, the potential for immortality. And the Bible says, oh, death came upon all men because all sinned. The wages of sin is what? God warned Adam and Eve in the garden, you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and you will surely die. And of course, what is instructive about this is that once they ate the fruit, they didn't just fall right to the ground. But something happened. In the eating of that fruit, something died. Now, they began to die. The whole world became corrupted, and God brought a curse that brought ultimate physical death on them, and then on their children, and then their grandchildren, and on and on, it's gone all the way down. But in that moment, something died in them that was their communion with God. 
that died a horrible death that day. They were separated from God, and that brought ramifications socially too. They, they separated themselves and were isolated from one another. They hid themselves from one another, and they hid themselves from God. This is the greatest truth about death in the Bible. Death is not merely when our bodies die and go into the ground and decay. Death is being separated from God and all of the glory and all of the beauty and all of the majesty and all of the holiness of God that we were created to enjoy forever. Death, sin comes in and death comes in and just cuts that off. And so Adam and Eve experienced that. And they've experienced it ever since. We have. This brought God's curse upon humanity and ever since we have suffered disease and death and malformity and social ills and injustices and physical death all because of sin. So to say it in one way, God entered into a sort of agreement with Adam and Eve in the very beginning, a kind of a covenant of works in which he said, Adam, if you will obey, you will live. And if you disobey, you will die. In one sense, all of mankind relates to God in the same way. Listen to these words from the Romans. Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, verse 6, God will render to each according to his works. To those who persist, excuse me, to those who by persistent doing of good seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. The principle was the same. You obey and you will Live, you disobey, and you will die. And um, somebody says, well, that verse makes it sound like um, you go to heaven by, by your works. But I want to remind you of God's standard for obedience. What kind of works are required to enter into eternal life? The way he says it in Romans 2 was by persistent doing of good works, by persevering in doing good works. That's one thing to do good. You've all done good. You've all done good at some time in your life, right? You walked away and after doing some nice thing and kind of felt good about that. And, and then maybe you try it again the next day. And, but then, you know, something came along and something happened and you, you, it was just not the way you wanted it to be and you got angry and you decided you were going to have your own way, some law of God you were confronted with, and you decided in that moment you were not going to do good, you were going to do evil, because you really wanted to go your own way. And I did too. In other words, every one of us, in spite of whatever sort of good you might call it that we have done, uh, we fall short of what we ought to have been. Every single one of us. Uh, James says it this way, whoever keeps the whole law and yet fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. You're a law keeper, or if you break any of it, you're a law breaker. Say, well, isn't there a middle ground? I'm a sort of a law keeper. I'm a kind of law keeper. I mean, I do a little bit. I do some good stuff. 
James's argument is this. You might say, hey, I keep this commandment. I've never broken this one commandment. You just fill in the blank, whatever you've got in your mind. I've never murdered, right? A lot of us could fill in that one, hopefully, right? Check that box. Never murdered. I've kept this commandment. Now I've broken this one over here, but I've kept this one. I've kept, in fact, I've kept most of those, you know, pretty well anyway. James says, do you understand this? The God who gave those commandments is the same God who gave this one. Because it's the same God, any breaking of any of the commandments is rebellion against God. And rebellion against God brings us under the curse, right? If you obey, you live. If you disobey, you die. You suffer. And that's the way we all find our experience to be. It certainly is true that, um, that some people do good things, and yet, because we are in rebellion against God, even the good that we have done is no good at all. Maybe an illustration would help. Picture a couple of hundred years ago out in the Caribbean Sea, and there's a ship on the horizon. And as it gets closer and closer, you see, you finally see it. Waving in the breeze on the mast is the black flag, right? And it's a pirate ship, or maybe it's whatever flag is waving up there, uh, or some kind of privateer. And, uh, but let's just say it's, it's a pirate ship. These people aren't, these people are just in it for themselves. And, and everybody on that ship uh, is is out to plunder your ship, and uh, but as you look at that ship, you might you might you might find that among the shipmates on that ship, they would argue that they're they're pretty good people because after all, when one of their fellow pirates gets shot, they don't just leave him to die; they drag him down and they take the bullet out and they bandage him up, and when they plunder and kill all of the uh, the ship uh, that, that they're attacking and kill all the people and plunder all the booty, they split it up between all of themselves. You know, we share, right? We take care of our own. There's, In other words, there's a sort of surface kind of goodness that sometimes we, we see in this world. But I want to tell you, the whole world is on the pirate ship in rebellion against the Creator God. And because the whole world is against God, even the good that we do is not good at all. It's far from what it ought to be. And so brings upon us the condemnation of the curse and death. Whenever we live our lives independently of God, we are in rebellion against Him as the rightful Creator and we sin and because of that we die. We're separated from God. And separation from God ultimately ends at what must be the opposite, the polar opposite of the very presence of God, and we call that hell. A place of eternal punishment for mankind. We lose our ability to live forever in a restored world that God will make. Now this is where we have to come to the account of Jesus now. 
Look again at the text. 1 Timothy 3.16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He that is God in Christ was manifested in the flesh. All right, let's start there. What's that? That's another holiday. Now we're at Christmas. We've gone backwards. He was manifested in the flesh. He literally became a man. God became one of us in order to save us. And you know, at Christmas time, one of my favorite carols to sing, you might know this, I think I've said it before, Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. And one verse in there says that he is, that Jesus Christ is the, quote, second, you know it? The second what? Adam. The second Adam from above, which comes from 1 Corinthians and other passages. In other words, here's a new Adam now who is going to be a new representative of a new humanity. Just like the first Adam was the first representative of the first humanity, here's the new Adam. And just like Adam of old, this new Adam is given a test, a test of obedience. And the principle is the same. If you obey, you will what? Live. And not, not, just, not just that you won't die physically, you, don't, won't, you won't die spiritually, you will, you will have everlasting communion with the holy God for all of eternity, unbroken and unbridled. Now, if you obey, you live. If you disobey, you will surely, what? You will surely die. Our Savior entered into this world and was tested just like the first Adam. And you can think of some of the examples in the Bible where it talks about the testing of this new man. He was tested severely in the wilderness. Uh, Satan came to him, right? We read about this in Matthew and other Gospels. And he was tempted and tested in the wilderness, but he did not fail, right? Praise the Savior. Remember this. Every temptation he answered with the word, he kept his faith and hope in God. In spite of the weakness of his flesh, he obeyed. And he continued to obey. Throughout the entirety of his earthly life, he obeyed. He obeyed as a, he obeyed as a five-year-old kid. He obeyed as a 13-year-old, well, what is a 13-year-old? Teen? He obeyed as a young adult. He obeyed as a man. He obeyed throughout all of his earthly ministry for those three or three and a half years. He obeyed in every respect. Here's what the Scripture says. When the fullness of time was come, God, Galatians 4.4, sent forth His Son to be born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. How did He do that? He kept the law on their behalf. And so earned life. John 8.29, Jesus says, about his father, he said, I always do the things 
that are pleasing to Him. Now, it's that word always that's the key, isn't it? We all, we all say, even as Christians, we say, a lot of times I do what's pleasing to Him. And even that's, of course, by His grace. But He said, I always do what is pleasing to Him. Right? What, was, what, what, did, what did Paul say in, in Romans? To those who persist in doing good and seek for glory and honor and immortality, they are rewarded with eternal life. Jesus said, whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Everything that was godly is, was characteristic of the Son of God. God, in fact, gave His own testimony. The Father, that is, gave, the, gave His own testimony about His Son at the transfiguration when He said, This is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. And of course, that went on all of Jesus' life. He just continued. He persevered in spite of test and temptation on every level. In fact, He was tempted beyond what you and I could possibly imagine because every one of us stops short of the full weight of that temptation because we give in. He felt the full weight of it without giving in and continued to do that. And God called him to the most difficult act of obedience of all to give up his life voluntarily on the cross in the most cruel death humanly imaginable. He gave up his life carrying the weight of the sin of the world on his shoulders, the full measure of the wrath of the almighty God of heaven, he bore it all in himself. This was his assignment, which he himself voluntarily entered into. And Romans chapter 5 says that perhaps for a good person uh, or for a good friend, one might be willing to die or, or, or a good person maybe even a stranger if he was a really good guy. You know, heroes, we call them heroes when they throw themselves on the landmine to protect their, their buddy next to him in the foxhole. But here is Christ who laid down His life for His enemy on the other side. For you while you were still His enemy. Let that sink in, brothers, sisters, friends. While you were His enemy... He laid down His life. Unless we think that this kind of obedience was easy for Jesus because, you know, I mean, He's Jesus after all, right? You know, that's not the way, that is not the right way to think about this. And, and I'll just give you, I won't go into a lot of detail, but I'll just give you an illustration. You know, remember in the garden, the Bible says He agonized over this act of obedience. Now, what does it mean to agonize and struggle with temptation in a way that's totally pure? I don't know. Right? Have you ever struggled with temptation? And what, what we typically find is in our hearts, there's some measure of impurity there, something in us that sort of wants to give in, right? Are we on the same page? But here is one who is agonizing under the full weight of what he is called to do. He says, Father, if it's possible... Let this cup pass from me. But then he said, not, nevertheless, not what I will, but what, what you want. If this is what you've called to me to do. This is exactly what I want to do. It was just an astounding act of submission to God. 
and obedience and trust and faith that we only aspire to, wish we could have a little bit of. No, it was not an easy thing. It was not an, of course, he's Jesus kind of thing. And I grant there is mystery to this, but he in agony was tempted and tested in every way. The test of Adam in the garden was nothing compared to the test of Christ. There are no words to tell of the strength of the temptation that he faced to quit before he got to the end. But he didn't. He endured. Amen? And that's what we remembered on Friday night. And of course, that was quite a contrast even to his closest followers who, when they were faced with the same temptation in the garden, they ran for the hills. I mean, they beat it for the darkness. They ran for their lives. They were afraid and fearful. Did not entrust themselves to Him who judges justly. Some of His own disciples turned against Him and denied Him with an oath. Well, I mean, that's, that's pretty much all of us at one point or another that have been afraid, been ashamed, been disobedient, been self-centered, untrusting but he persevered. He kept believing. Can you imagine? I mean, it's one thing we as Christians constantly come together and encourage one another to trust God. Keep trusting. He's faithful. Here is the one who trusted God all alone. All. I mean, there's no one else around him that's saying, I'm right here beside you, brother. And he's all alone. Utterly alone. More alone than any being could ever imagine themselves to be as even his own father apparently abandons him and gives him up to a cruel death and to his enemies. No, our obedience on our very best day falls so far short. But Christ obeyed. He pleased God. And here's here's the real irony of the Christian message. The one, the only one, who pleased God in every respect was sent to a cross to suffer under the displeasure of God. In fact, the wrath of God. And everything humanly within someone like that would say, this is not what? It's not fair. I've done everything He wanted me to do. And He's turning His back on me. He's giving me up to my enemies. Like Job, who prefigured Him, He did not suffer for His own sin. Like David, who was persecuted for no wrong of His his own, The Savior cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ knew that his life was pleasing to God. He knew that he perfectly fulfilled the Father's will, and he knew that the Father was well pleased with him. But then, in the midst of his worst suffering imaginable, he cries out as if he is utterly forsaken. 
But I want to tell you that even in that, here's the most beautiful thing about our Lord and His obedience. Even in the midst of that, He endured in faith. He persevered in obedience. He never wavered in His belief in God's faithfulness and in God's ultimate vindication of Him. He never wavered in that. In fact, His dying words were, Father, into Your hands I commend my soul, my spirit. I give myself to You. But from all outward appearances, He was abandoned. We did esteem Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He died in faith. For three days, it seemed like uh, His hope was misplaced. Remember, he had listened to the taunting words of the, of the Jewish leaders, even of the thieves on the, the criminals next to him, crucified. If you really are who you think you are, if you really are who you say you are, if God is really pleased with you, why doesn't he deliver you? Let him come and get you right now. Where is he? You fool. You deluded fool. Right? That was what was behind all those words. And they took his body down, they put it in a tomb, and it looked like all of those people were right. They were totally right. His sacrifice had not in the end been acceptable. His obedience was not perfect after all. But then you go back to the text again and look at this. 1 Timothy 3.16 again. Not only was he manifested in the flesh... But he was what? What's the next word? Vindicated by the Spirit. And if you have an ESV, you see the word vindicated. If you look, there's a little six there, I think, in mine. If you look down at the footnote, you see the word vindicated can also be translated what? Justified by the Spirit. He was vindicated or justified. How was he vindicated? By the Holy Spirit. Well, Paul, I think, gives the, the greatest of answers in Romans chapter 4, verse 4. Listen carefully to this answer. How Son of God, vindicated by the Spirit, Paul says that Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power. Now, isn't, now that's, remember, that's the issue at hand. They said, if you are the Son of God... If God's really your father, you're really the, his beloved, special child that you keep saying, let him save you. Nothing happened. God abandoned him. We were right. Now Paul writes, God declared him to be the son of God with power according to the Holy Spirit by his resurrection from the dead. That's his vindication. That's the vindication of all of his obedient life leading to his obedience in death. The resurrection was God saying loud and clear, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It was the vindication of his righteousness. Philippians says it this way, 
Jesus Christ humbled Himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him. Because His obedience was perfect and pleasing to God, it was personal, perfect, and persistent obedience, God exalted Him to His own right hand in all His glory. He was vindicated, vindicated at last. That's what the resurrection is. Among other things, that's one of the that's the great glory of the resurrection. And remember, I said the word vindicated can also be translated justified. To justify someone is to pronounce a legal verdict that that person is righteous. I mean, he's 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 not guilty. He meets the standard. He did what he was supposed to do. He didn't disobey. The resurrection of Jesus was His justification. It was the justification of Jesus. It was God saying He is not guilty. He was obedient. He was acceptable. He's well-pleasing. He was perfectly righteous. And that's why the resurrection is a big, big deal in the story, in the account of, of our Savior and in the history of God's working with humanity. Now, one last thing, and this is where it becomes so meaningful to all of us who follow believe in, in faith, we, we believe in Jesus. And for this, you're going to have to turn to one more passage, all right? So it's page 941 in the House Bible. It's Romans chapter 4, again, the passage I just quoted a minute ago. Romans 4. Um... Let's start with verse 2. Romans 4, verse 2. For if Abraham was justified... Now, that's the same word there, isn't it? Justified. God said that Abraham was justified, just like Jesus was justified. Okay. Here's somebody, a man justified. I mean, another man, not just Jesus. Right? So... If there's hope, now we know Jesus was justified because, you know, he did everything that pleased God. But here's a man who was justified. If there's hope for a man, another man, a sinner to be justified, then maybe there's hope for me. It says Abraham was justified. He says if, excuse me, if Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to boast about but not before God. Abraham has no righteousness that carries any merit with God because Abraham's on the same pirate ship as the rest of us. Abraham's a rebel against God. So he says, it cannot be the case that Abraham was justified like Jesus was. Jesus is justified on the basis of his works, right? His works were everything they ought to be, and so he was vindicated. Abraham was vindicated too, but not on the same basis. That makes sense? For what does the Scripture say? Verse 3. Abraham believed God. Now we're talking about something different, not working or obeying or acting or doing or keeping law or something, but faith. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then if you drop down to verse 23, 
he kind of continues on down here. He says, but the words, it was counted to him, talking about Abraham still, the words, it was counted to him, were not written for what? For his sake alone. And that's where all of us say, amen. Maybe there's hope for more than just Abraham. They were not written for his sake alone, verse 23, but for ours also, verse 24. For it will be counted to us who believe in Him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. And then look at this, verse 25. Our Lord was delivered up for our trespasses. The word delivered up is a reference to His death. He was delivered up for our trespasses, our sins, and raised for our what? There it is again, that glorious word. Jesus was raised so that we might be vindicated. Like Abraham. Not by his own deeds because they were not what they ought to have been, but somehow because of the deeds of Jesus... Abraham was vindicated. And the connection between Abraham and Jesus is simply faith. Faith. Abraham trusts Christ. All of the promises of God about the Messiah. And so Abraham and we can be declared righteous. Not because of our own obedience, but because of the obedience of someone else. And the connecting link between us and Jesus is the same connecting link between Abraham and Jesus, which is faith. We are, remember I talked about the solidarity of mankind? That's a key, important Bible truth to understand. We're all united in Adam, all right? That was a natural union, This is a supernatural union with a new humanity. Into this union we were born. Into this union we have to be born again. This union comes through the flesh. This union comes about through the Spirit. This union ultimately brings death upon all because all sinned. This union brings life. And that union of God's, by God's grace of ourselves in Christ comes through faith, just like it did for Abraham, putting our hope and our trust not on ourselves, but on the Lord Jesus Christ alone, upon the one to whom God said, you are my son, I am pleased with you. Our hope as Christians is all in Him. You see, you can't mix any of yourself with it or you've put yourself back on the standing of of your own righteousness and whether that righteousness is going to be vindicated. And, And every one of us will fail on that kind of platform. But on another kind of platform, the platform that is a platform of grace, a covenant of grace, we are brought into union with Christ. And because He obeyed, This is the amazing thing. 
He obeys, and yet we are vindicated. And you could call it that. You could just, you know, we're, we're used to using the sort of spiritual Christian churchly term justified. I don't mind if you use the term vindicated. It might maybe not help in all situations, but, but it is a vindication. But what is so amazing, it's, it's a vindication of people who ought not to be vindicated for anything in themselves. That vindication, if it's going to be anything other than a legal fiction, it can only come about by a true union with the one who was rightly vindicated. And the Bible says that God is in the union with Christ, has paid for all of our sins in His Son and given us all of the righteousness of Christ as we are united with Him by the Spirit through faith. So we are raised together with Him. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, we are united with Him in His death and in His resurrection and in His ascension. And the Bible says we're actually already seated with Jesus Christ. Somehow, it's as if, there's, it's as if we are living in another dimension already glorified in heaven. You know, I, I often... You know, we, we just pray that we will, um, that we can make it to glory, that we can be vindicated in the last day, in the last judgment. He says, as if you have faith in Christ, you're all, it's as if you're already vindicated. The judgment day that's coming someday, like Jesus' judgment on the cross, it's already happened. And God looked, God judged Jesus, and then God vindicated him and he glorified him. If you're a Christian by faith, then God, it's as if God has already judged you and vindicated you and you're already in glory. This is why Christians have, a, I mean, true Christians have a, of a kind of a con- confidence that almost seems presumptuous to some people who don't grasp the magnitude of the gospel. My righteousness is in Christ. There it is, complete and full and perfect and done. I'm judged, I'm vindicated, I'm glorified by God's grace through faith. So I guess the final question comes down to this, is whether you are a person of faith. I'm not just, I don't mean just a person of faith in terms of you believe in something or have some spiritual sense about you, but whether you have come to a point like Abraham and like all who will be vindicated in the last day, you've come to the point where you've said, there's nothing good in me, but Christ is my hope. Christ is all my hope. His righteousness is all I I need and all I want. Whether you've come to a point of humility and confessing to God your own sin and asking Him, to be gracious to you through the Lord Jesus. Whether you have come to faith, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to confess with your mouth that He is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has, what? Raised Him from the dead. You'll be saved. Maybe this Easter Sunday, the day of resurrection, It could be a day of resurrection for you. It could be the day when you come to life. 
when you finally say in your heart, I believe. I do. The day when you are born again. Oh, open your heart to Jesus. And if you're a believer in here, I know your heart is open to Him. And it's just a sweet thing to hear about Him again, isn't it? To rejoice in the glory in Him. Don't ever, ever think that, or let anybody else around you think that Christians are are Christians are Christians because they're somehow better than everybody else. Um, Christians are Christians because there is someone that they trust who's better than everybody else. And their hope is in Him and in Him alone. And united to Him, their lives do change. They always, they always, they only ever boast in in Him, never in themselves. No Christian, true Christian, justifies himself. I'm not bad. I'm, I'm better than a lot of people. No, a true Christian only boasts in Jesus Christ. The risen, resurrected, glorified, vindicated Son of God. Our life is hid with Him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we thank You for this Word today and we pray that You would cause it to bring life. We pray that we might be sustained by it. We pray that perhaps today may be even the day that someone confesses with their mouth the Lord Jesus Christ for the first time in an unflinching, unambiguous way. We pray that that may be the case. We long to see that. We pray that You would keep us in the faith that we would not walk away from Christ We praise You for all that we have in Him. We pray it in His name. Amen.